Welcome everyone to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. This week, we welcome Greg. He's the president and CEO of RM Biotech, a clinical stage biotechnology company whose mission is to restore vision to millions of patients with its life-changing regenerative therapies. Its first product candidate is one of the first clinically validated cell therapies for corneal care. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Omar and Zach. I appreciate you guys having me. To get started, we'd love to first talk about you know, how you found your way into the world of biotech. I certainly wasn't smart enough like you guys to, you know, to, you know, to you know, be a doctor or, or to be on the, you know, the, the scientific side of, of biotech. So I, you know, growing up, my, my father was a serial entrepreneur in the med tech side of, of healthcare. And I knew I wanted to be involved with helping patients. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't quite so gifted to be able to, you know, or as academically focused, to, you know, to go to medical school and, and do all, all the, all the great hands-on work that physicians do every single, every single day. So I guess the next best thing to do was to try to find my way into in, into another element of healthcare. And for me, I was always interested in science. I was always interested in where therapeutics and and treatments could you know could take medicine. And so, uh, my small way of trying to contribute to you know to mankind was to go and do the, the product side of healthcare. And so I've been in and out of biotech, uh, pharma, and medtech, and I've loved every second of it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your first role within the product side of healthcare? So I grew up in a in kind of commercial environment. So I've always been more of a commercial facing person in, in biotech. My first role was uh, actually early on in my career, I worked for my dad's company, uh, starting at the age of well, officially 12, unofficially uh, eight years old, where <laughs> you answering telephones and, and uh, you know, picking product in the warehouse. But he had a contact lens company that he and his partner had started. They ended up taking public and then selling it to, to Cooper Vision many years ago. And so, you know, my dad was the commercial guy. So I, well, all I ever knew growing up was sales and marketing and, and eye health. And so that kind of brought me into where I'm at. I mean, I spent most of my career uh, in ophthalmology, not by accident, only because I knew I grew up with eyes and that's all I really know. And I love talking about eyes. Uh, and then secondarily, most of my work has been primarily in the areas of commercialization, market access, uh, medical affairs, a little bit on the sales and sales side as well. But, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of an interesting track usually for biotech. Most biotech uh, executives, particularly CEOs that, that, that are that are you know, in development stage companies usually come more from a scientific development track. So, you know, my career has been a little bit different than we usually see in most of biotech. Jumping off from there, can you tell us more about what brought you to Orion Biotech and maybe give us some of its mission statement and the story behind the company? Yeah. So, you know, about 2018, the the inventor of this technology, Shigeru Kaneshita from the Kyoto Prefecture University in Kyoto, Japan, he published his first results of the first 11 patients in the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, in our field in ophthalmology, not many things make it in the New England Journal of Medicine. So that usually catches an attention. And I remember reading the article in 2018 when it first came out. At the time, I was working for a company called Blockos. And when I read it, I thought to myself, wow, this is entirely transformational. It's true. And it works. And so uh, after reading, I was kind of like, I was mesmerized by it. And then a couple of years passed. In late 2020, I get, a, I get an email from a headhunter saying, 
Um, we're looking for a CEO of this cell therapy startup in Seattle that happens to be working on this, this cell therapy for corneal field disease. I knew exact I knew exactly what it was from that reading that paper. And I, I was laying in bed, looked over my wife and said, What do you think about Seattle? Because at the time we were living in Southern California and we, you know, we had moved so many times in our marriage. I don't think there was any interest in doing that again. And she said, Well, I mean, whatever you want to do. And so I, the next morning I called the head owner and said, I absolutely agree this is this job. I know exactly the therapy that, you, that you're talking about. I'm extremely interested. Uh, I, if this works, this, this is the next big thing in ophthalmology. And that kind of started me off. Uh, you know, I had not been a CEO previously. I think the, the board was looking for a multi, you know, a CEO that had done it multiple times. So when I started the interview process, I probably wasn't in, in pole position. But the good news is I understood the technology and I was passionate about it. And uh, wasn't afraid to lay it all lay it all out there and, and try to convince the board that I was the right guy. And an amazing process of interviewing and and uh, and learning as I as I went. And you know, at the end of the day, the opportunity was given was put in my direction, and I've never regretted it. It's been the best decision I've ever made in my career. So having not been in a CEO position before, where did you learn the skills that it takes to be a CEO of a biotech company? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I, I kind of like relate that to like when I first had my first child, like I remember the, when, I, when I had our, we have an 18-year-old daughter and a, and a 10-year-old daughter. When the 18-year-old, I remember, and I was in business school at that point at Vanderbilt. And I remember sitting next to my wife uh, after that first night after we had Judy Ann. And I said to her, where's the instruction manual, like how to raise a child? And it doesn't exist. It's the same thing with the CEO of a biotech company. There's no real instruction manual. It's a lot of experience along the way. And, you know, I think one is not having risk conversion. It's so easy to go the, the path least resistance. In biotech, everything is risk, right? I mean, in the sense of we're pushing the limits of science at every single day. Uh, and if you're afraid of risk, it's really hard to be successful in biotech. And biotech's all about managing risk. That's something that I think kind of as a, a, a basic framework that we start with. But in the CEO role, I think one is know, knowing how to build a good team. Knowing when to when to hire and, and fire. I mean, there are times you have to remove people in the organization that, that aren't right for the organization. Three is setting a vision and getting people to mobilize around the vision. And then four, be able to tell the story. Most of my job is raising money and, and getting people bought in the story. To be bought into a story, you have to believe what you're doing. And so I think part of that is making sure that when you go into as whether a new CEO or as a multiple uh, CEO that's been done it multiple times is. Only do things that you actually believe in. If you, if you don't believe in something, people will see right through it. And your ability to be successful you will be great. You won't be able to hire the right people. You won't be able to raise money. You won't be able to take, you know, take the company to the next level. You, you, you won't be able to get uh, potential clinical sites to buy into what you're doing. It all starts with, with the belief of CEO and, and, the, and the CEO's ability to, 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 to tell that story to, you know, to everybody. On the website, I was reading... A little excerpt about your values. It said, when we formed Arion several years ago, we chose to highlight the values of grit, stewardship, and transformation. How did you land on those values? Great question. So this is right after I joined in 2021. We brought the, the senior team together and we kind of had a white piece of paper and said, let's spend the day and figure out who we are. And, you know, Interesting enough, grit is not a word you see in many people's values. It's, it's kind of it's not a common you know common uh, values of sorts. But what we like about our team is we're not afraid of the unknown and we're not afraid of failure. And we're willing to look, when we look at the walls in front of us. We're instead of saying we need to go around the walls, we look at it and saying we're going to break through the walls. 
And that's everything in biotech is usually difficult, right? I mean, it's rare to, if you're going to work on a first in kind drug or first in kind therapy, there's going to be no roadmap and you're going to have to develop along the way. And we wanted a mindset in our employees that said, we're not afraid of the unknown. And that's part of our idea of grit. Along with that, when we talk about transformation and stewardship, which are other two values, we also want to declare in the world that you know everything that we work on in our company is going to be first in kind. That we're not going to we're not going to create the third or tenth or thirtieth you know you name your therapeutic therapeutic class. Uh, everything we wanted to work on was going to be first in kind, and, and those are risks that we're willing to take. And thirdly, most importantly, we care about we care about what we do. We care about how we impact our our patients. We care about how we impact our employees. Our uh, you know we care how we impact the community as a whole. And so that's where the stewardship piece comes in. And I think we put those three parts together. The employees with those kind of mindsets that are that are gritty, that want to work on things that are, that are hard uh, and do, want to do it for the right reasons. Those are employees. Those are leaders that will take our company to the next level. And that, that's kind of how we got to our value set. Yeah, I like what you said about your role. It's not about working around walls, but kind of breaking through them. And I was wondering what, uh, it looks like in the drug creation approval process, um, you know, from a CEO perspective and kind of maybe a glimpse at what biotech looks like versus what that would look like for other companies. Yeah. I mean, I guess first and foremost, a lot of tough days. There's probably, there's more, there's more days where, where I go home and say, oh my goodness, can we, can we do this versus, you know, you feel like, yeah, you're on the right path. Because I think, again, implicitly there's barriers along the way and it's easy to get frustrated or concerned. But I think where, for me personally, where I've been able to get through that is I have a drug that I know that works. And on the bad days, when it feels like things aren't working our direction, I can always go back to there's somebody in the world that has corneal disease that needs access to this drug. And that motivates my team and I to work work through the walls and not be afraid of, of, of not be afraid of failure, not be afraid of limitation, but but to, to give it all that we have. Because in the end, what we do is to help patients. And if, if someone goes into biotech for anything other than helping patients, they're, they're, they're missing the point. There's a lot of fields that you can make a lot more money a lot faster than, than biotech. And I always, in you know, healthcare in general, I always start with people can get there and, and be very successful in any part of healthcare if they put the patient first. And when you do that, it takes away all. It takes away the the hard days. It takes away the challenges. It puts it in perspective of what what it's about that we're doing. And now, shifting to talk about Ariane's first product candidate, can you tell us a little bit about what is Visnova and why this is a big deal? Yeah, absolutely. So Visnova is a is a cell therapy. So we're we're taking donated cadaveric corneal endothelial cells from individuals who have deceased that have graciously uh, donated their you know, organs you know, to, you know, to you know, help other people. And, and Frank, and this is a kind of side note, it's, it's the greatest gift anyone can give at the end of their life. And we highly respect and admire everyone that, you know, that has donated organs you know, to, to helping somebody else. And so our case, we take a cornea, we're able to remove the endothelial cells off, off a donor cornea. Um, and historically uh, today, how treatment for corneal disease works is for every donor, that cornea is used for a singular corneal transplant. The problem with that is it's not very scalable. There's about 70,000 corneal transplants that are done in the world every year. 
Unfortunately, there's about 32 million eyes that are impacted by coronary Hill disease. And so the math doesn't work between the number of corneas available for donation and the number of people who actually do corneal transplant surgery. And so what we do is we can, we can uh, take cells that don't naturally regenerate. So corneal cells on their own are, don't regenerate. Uh, we have a proprietary way to turn that regenerative process on uh, in culture. Uh, and, and for every cornea today, we can make about 100 treatments. By the time we're approved, we'll be able to make over 1,000 treatments for every one cornea. So translation that means is we with the year's volume of corneal transplant, we can essentially treat, treat every patient around the world with corneal disease with our scaling. Additionally, this is a procedure that can be done by a broader group of treaters. Instead of a few, few hundred corneal specialists in the U.S. that do corneal transplant, there are about 8,000 cataract specialists in the U.S. that could potentially do this as well. So we expand both the, the number of the supply chain, you know, the number of cells that are available uh, for transplant, but more so we, we also expand the number of people that, could, that can provide treatments. That's going to have a big impact on addressing corneal field disease around the world. Today, it's prioritized for the worst, the worst. In the future of cell therapy, we can address corneal field disease at the earliest onset before people lose significant amounts of their vision. I just want to say that that sounds uh, massive. Like it's incredible that out of you know one cadaver, you can have that much of an impact. Talking about the approval process, just want to congratulate you and the team for getting approval in Japan. And I'm hearing that you guys are getting trials started in the U.S. Can you take us along that process of like, uh, you know, why you guys started there and are moving to the U.S. now? Like, what's that process been like? It's a great storyline relative to what your you know what your webinar is about. I mean, so this came out of university. Uh, so it started in, again in Shigeru Kenishida's labs in, in Kyoto, Japan. And Shigeru started this back in, in 2002. And it took him a while to figure this out. I mean, you know, it took him time in the labs, understanding how you get cells, how you can turn on and off the replication process. So in around 2012, we first started getting into, he first started getting into human beings. And so um, because of it, it coming out of Japan, the program was more advanced. And, and he had worked with the Japanese government, the PMDA, to define the approval process. Our parent, at the time, our parent company, no longer, no longer our parent company, but at the time, uh, they were a company called Corneogen. And they were, they're the world's largest supplier of corneal tissue. So they work with eye banks and they, they harvest corneal tissue uh, and process it and be using corneal transplant surgery. Since they had been providing Kinoshita the corneas he was using you know, for, this, for this drug, um, they were able to negotiate a, a license agreement to license you know, the intellectual property uh, for this treatment. Uh, and they closed, that, they closed that in 2019. And so um, because of that, you know, again, Kinoshita had, had been very had gone very far with the Japanese government. And that's really why we have an approval today in Japan because of all the prior work that was done in Japan starting in you know, 2012, uh, 2012 with, the, with the first patients that were dosed. Conversely, the US and Europe have, has a different process for uh, approval, starting trials, et cetera. And so and, you know, we are on the cusp of opening our US trials, a phase one, two trial. So it's not a pure phase one trial, first in human. It's a it's more of a phase two-like to move us down the approval pathway. Um, and I think, again, the difference is uh, coming to academia, 
Hinoshita could, could move it further in Japan than, than it could do in other, other parts of the world. Now we're moving into more of a traditional biotech development process in, in, in the U.S. So it's a unique experience where we're going to have an approved drug. We have approved drug in Japan, and we're still, you know, we're still working the development process uh, in the U.S. So I think it's it's an advantage because we have to learn a lot about our drug early on, uh, but it's different than what I'm, I'm used to. Can you talk a little bit more about the difference between drugs that spin out of academic institutes versus, say, like a, a pharmaceutical company? That's a really good question. It's an important question. So, you know, academia tends to develop drugs on the construct of this is the drug I need to address an underlying disease. Um, they Where academia struggles is they tend not to have a really good line of sight on to how you develop a drug that will be, it's approvable by the FDA or EMA. And there are, there's a lot of preclinical work. There's a lot of CMC work that has to be done before a drug can enter a U.S. trial under an, under an IND. And so a lot of times uh, when you acquire a drug from academia, there's some time where you have to go back and do that some of that work. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's just the nature of academically der derived research. If you develop a drug within a big company, it's usually coming through a, a massive screen effort. So you're, you know, you're screening different compounds or different, or different you know, biologic material, and then you put it through a rigorous set of development steps. It tends to slow down the process and you tend to be less risk-taking. Uh, but conversely, when you're ready to submit the IND, you have this, you have a very strong preclinical uh and uh and CMC package to support open IND. So while I think the the rigor of the program is better, the speed and level of risk is different than what, than what you have coming in academia. The current approval you guys had for Visnova was with uh, Bull's Chiropathy. I was wondering if you're able to share any other uses you think that uh, it could apply to in that context. Yeah, great question. So um, our indication we're pursuing in the United States is corneal edema, secondary to corneal field disease. If you read carefully on the Japan approval, it's Bull's Keratopathy in the presence uh, of either corneal edema or bulli. It's, a, it, it's effective in the same indication, but I think the way we think through this is the initial indication is, is targeting you know, people that have real underlying disease pathology. So as corneal field disease progresses, everyone gets corneal edema. Now, the flip side of that is uh, there's a lot of people undergoing cataract surgery that either have reduced endothelial cell counts or because of cataract surgery have reduced endothelial cell counts. Every time a surgeon goes in the eye, there's a risk of endothelial cell loss. And so I can see in the future that we could look at a, a version of, of our cell therapy where you might a, a smaller bolus of drug to as a preventative mechanism. Now, the hard part about that is we have to work the economics out. I mean, you know, trying to do you know, prophylactic surgery or prophylactic treatment uh, is difficult with payers. But I can see a world where for those who are at risk of, of endothelial loss, cell loss, they'll eventually become endothelial disease that we treat those patients earlier. Yeah, that sounds massive. Yeah, thanks for answering that question. I think the other side, I would say there's a lot of corneal diseases where or disease of the eye, frankly, that the primary reason for vision loss uh, or, or blindness is because of, of cell death. And there's very few areas in medicine where, where cell therapy is better targeted than, than in ophthalmology because the most of our big ticket items that still cause blindness are related to cell death. And what we'll take is, it may not be this, this product, it could be a, a different version of this product. We'll take our know-how around getting non-regenerating cells to regenerate and apply it to other parts of the eye. And I think that that has the, we look 20 years down the line, I think cell therapy has the potential to dramatically change 
or bend the curve in, in, in blindness around the world. So expanding off that, how do you see the cell therapy field evolving within the next 30, 50 years? Well, the advantage of cell therapy is, that's a great question, by the way. The advantage of cell therapy is it's natural, right? I mean, we're asking cells that, that have nat naturally always been cells to, con to continue to be cells in, 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 in their current function. And unlike gene therapy, I, I'm a huge fan of gene therapy. The problem with gene therapy is you are, in, in, you are changing DNA. And sometimes when we change DNA, you know, the, the results, while we might get a good efficacy result, there, there can be collateral uh, damage or there can be, you know, something else can happen. The beauty of cell therapy is these are human cells that we that we asking to need to be human cells. And so, you know, the safety profile tends to be really good on those. Uh, and so I think cell therapy has got a bright future in medicine. Uh, you know, I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see it applied to neurosciences, which, you know, if someone can figure out how to break the blood brain barrier and apply this to Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or even dementia, the future could be quite bright. But I also think we'll see it in diabetes. I mean, there's there's companies working on, on cell therapy and diabetic applications. I mean, if you could, if you could essentially change the, the, the cell structure in the, in the pancreas using uh, cell therapy, you might be able to re reverse the onset of type 1 and type 2 di diabetes, which would be a tremendous change you know, for patients or, or around the world. But you know, look, I'm an ophthalmology guy. I can only really primarily speak the ophthalmology segment, but I, I, I'm really bullish on cell therapy. We're at the very, very tip of the iceberg. And you know, what I learned from the pandemic is when, when we mobilize as a scientific community and a medical community around a common goal, uh, we, we can break down a lot of barriers. And again, the COVID vaccines are the exact uh, proof point of that. When the pandemic started, I told my wife it was going to be five to 10 years before we have a vaccine. I was wrong by, by orders of magnitude. Uh, and uh, I think we apply that same kind of breakthrough concept, the breakthrough development uh, approach to cell therapy, uh, our potential to, to harness cells that have always wanted to be cells and function like cells in a way that can address a lot of diseases. And now looking back, what have been some of the biggest like technology shifts within biotech that have, have really enabled this like pace of innovation to speed up? I hear often that we're having a technology paradigm shift within biotech. Yep. I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is the shifting towards taking oncologic bi biotech assets and applying the other targets outside a cancer application. Because most things in biotech start in a cancer application. Why? Because safety, I mean, you can accept more risk in cancer than you can in other diseases. But the best example is if you look at ophthalmology with the advent of using anti-VEGFs for real retinal disease. I mean, so anti-VEGFs came out of cancer. You know, primarily we think of Avastin being used in, in a number of angiogenic pathways in cancer. Some of the broad ideas said, well, if it works in cancer to reduce angiogenesis, why wouldn't that work in the case of wet, wet macro generation where, where you get blood vessel formation in the back of the eye? And sure enough, today, I mean, that's the standard of care for retinal disease. When I was starting my career, how retina specialists talked to somebody with a wet, with a wet AMD is, sir or ma'am, I'm sorry, you have wet AMD. There's nothing we can do for you. You're going to go blind in a year. And that was, kind of, that was only 10 years ago. I mean, and today, people think you're crazy if you, if you were to say that today. And so I think that's one, one example. I think two is the platforms that are available today are like we never had before. Again, forgive me for going back to the COVID vaccines, but mRNAs, the beauty of mRNAs is they can be massively screened with AI and manufactured in like in minutes. The idea of being able to do that 20 years ago, I would say you're crazy, but you know, the ability to massively scale quickly to allow you to get in trials faster 
sets a bar that, that we can screen way more candidates than ever before. And more importantly, allows us to access rarer diseases where you can't, you can't spend a billion dollars trying to access, you name your rare disease. You got to do it more efficiently. And the technology have caught up where, you know, you can do this in a way where the development costs are not extraordinary and attack diseases that frankly, there's no other options for. And there are diseases that we still have today that, you know, affect small numbers of people that we, we could have solutions for just the economic incentives have never, haven't been there like they are now. And those economic incentives include, include being able to speed up development in a way to be able to screen candidates quickly, get them into trials, and then, you know, get them approved. And I think we're, I mean, look, there, there's a whole industry in orphan and rare drugs. When I started my career, no one ever talked about that. Now it's, I mean, every biotech, every pharma company has a rare disease program. And that's wonderful. I mean, that's where the, the most potential change lives exists. Jumping off from one of those points you made about utility AI, I was wondering in your experience with Orion, have you guys seen any of the utility for your, any of your own products? So we haven't gotten there yet, but I think the good news about coronary field disease, particularly Fuchs dystrophy, is there is a anatomic marker for Fuchs dystrophy. So it's, it's something called GUTE. So it's like, think of GUTE as, it's not quite a scar, but it's more of a deposit of material on the corneal endothelium. You can imagine a world where using AI, where, you know, with a simple camera, you could screen patients for GUTE, uh, at least signals of the GUTE. Uh, we would find a lot more patients. And I think we'll see that as this treatment comes, comes to market. Um, so that's how, how I see the application. But I think AI has so many roles in biotech, whether it's diagnostic or whether it's screening drug targets at the earliest onset. I also think we're going to find that most of our drug target screening is going to be computerized and that we're going to, you know, we're going to model scenarios, uh, clinical and scientific scenarios that will tell us here's the best target to use. And that's exactly how the COVID vaccines were, you know, were developed. I mean, it was developed on a computer. It wasn't developed, it wasn't developed the old school pharma way of I'm going to try all these chemical entities on, on animals. And, and see what comes out and fine tune from there. I mean, it was massively screened using supercomputing. Greg, I want to thank you for all the insight you provided. As we're about to close, I just wanted to know if you had any advice for students and young professionals that were interested in exploring the field of biotech. Yeah, absolutely. Don't be afraid to do something new. Don't be afraid when you're in your organization, when they say, look, can somebody do X? You may not have the experience, but raise your hand and be willing to do it. People that take risks, both professionally and personally, are the ones that will be successful in biotech. And it's not comfortable to do that in a large company. It's comfortable to be the person on the sideline not taking risk. And it may, sometimes it can injure you a little bit career-wise by taking those risks. But those are the people that are going to head. Those are the people that are, that are going to be able to, to not only help themselves professionally, but more so are going to break the barriers down so patients get access to breakthrough treatments. And my biggest advice is take those risks. They're, they're worth it. What we do is so important. The ability to try to address underlying disease is what we're all about uh, in any, all parts of the healthcare, whether you're a physician, a clinician, a biotech person, you know, it doesn't really matter where you are in the healthcare ecosystem. We're all about trying to help patients. And uh, you know, doctors and patients alike need biotech people that are unafraid of the risks of, of developing drugs that may or may not work. Because the reality is most drugs don't work. Uh, and that's just the reality of biotech. And uh, if that bothers you, pretty hard to be successful in this field. If, if you embrace that and say, every time I have a failure, I'm gonna learn from it and try it again, try it a different way, uh, then the, the, the probability of success goes up. And most importantly, we get treatments out, out to patients. Thank you so much, Greg.
This has been the MSX Podcast.